Day zero is the moment before company formation. When a founder decides to take the plunge, follow their dream, and commit to pursuing their vision of change. On day zero, you'll hear founders tell their story. From the initial idea, through reactions by critics and skeptics, setbacks and successes, we'll cover it all. Behind every company is a founder with ambition, goals, dreams, and wisdom to be shared. Let's explore them together. Well, thank you so much, and welcome to another podcast of Day Zero, where we interview founders really progressing and transforming the healthcare industry. I'm Lynn Chow O'Keefe, founding and managing partner of Define Ventures. We're an early stage venture capital firm, and I'm just so welcome to be joined with AG. And many of you might actually even know AG. I always say that she is someone who has almost been legendary here in healthcare for such a long time. But AG is a five-time founder. The last three, she founded Humedica, sold that to Optum, was the chief product officer of Optum Analytics. She then was the founding GP at Optum Ventures and invested in early stage digital health companies. And then in 2019 was the founder of Folks Health, which is an LGBTQ health direct-to-consumer company. And like I said, that's only three out of the five there. So AG, I don't even know. I can't even keep up really with your you know, vision and where you're going with everything. You know, before we get to, to all of those just monumental achievements, maybe we can just start. I always like starting from the very beginning and just talk to us about what led you to kind of A, healthcare and maybe B, you know, really starting to think about doing something different and founding something? Because if I remember, I mean, you were really actually classically trained as a lawyer. Yeah. So so started my career as a lawyer, thought that that was a great way to make change. Started my career actually working in a clinic with LGBTQ kids on the streets of Boston, who, you know, it's the height of the AIDS crisis and got a firsthand look at how broken the healthcare system was and realized that being a lawyer was trying to work one brick at a time. And I had an instinct that I wanted to work at the system level, but didn't know what that meant at all. And also felt like I wanted to build something, but didn't know what that meant either. And, and really hadn't thought about entrepreneurship. I'll fast forward a little bit, but, but went to public health school and there got recruited by a couple of entrepreneurs in Boston who were working around data and analytics. And they pulled me in. And again, I had no idea what they were doing or how to do it or what equity meant or any of those things, but really quickly got the bug, mostly because I saw how quickly we could build and how quickly we could start to have an impact in a way that just was astonishing to me coming from from the the perspective that I had been coming from in terms of policy and law and, 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 and sort of that sort of thing. So I was hooked. I was absolutely hooked and knew that that was where I was headed. Wow. And, and so what was that first, you know, the two founders that came to you and you know, you were just learning the ropes and what a startup was. What compels you to say, this is right for me at this time? Or is it the opportunity set? Like what what goes in the mind of AG to say, yes, I'm going to found something here? 
Yeah, I have kind of an obsession with learning new things. And I, I one of the things that I think is a little bit maybe strange, but I think entrepreneurs share this is I, I love that uncomfortable feeling of not knowing. Some people really don't like that uncomfortable feeling of not knowing, but I actually really get a charge out of it. And, you know, one of the things and you and I have often spoken about this that I think makes great entrepreneurs is, you know, he or she who, who, who learns the fastest wins. And so being obsessive about learning and about wading into the unknown to me is, is, is really, I think, just an absolutely, absolutely non-negotiable characteristic of a great entrepreneur. And, and it turns out that I love the unknown and I love, I love feeling ignorant and, and like I'm going to go learn something. So, so, you know, those first, those first few years, like I said, I was working with a couple of entrepreneurs in Boston, one of whom was a serial entrepreneur. He had started several companies in the Bluetooth space and all kinds of stuff. So he just wandered around various industries looking for, for companies to start. And that to me was really exciting. I was like, oh, you can like go and have successive companies that you build and 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 have impact in different places over reasonably short periods of time. You know, a legal case can stretch for a decade. And this guy had started three companies in the space of a decade. And I and they were all going concerns. And I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And our other co-founder was a research doctor. And, you know, same thing with him. He was like, I'm looking at like spans of decades to run trials and we can run companies like in 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 short, short cycle. But those same characteristics, they shared those same characteristics as well, which was a love of experimentation, a love of not knowing and, and really playing that game of how can we learn the fastest? How can we learn the cheapest? You and I've spent a lot of time talking about that. And how do we sort of ask the right questions? Because the answers are always going to change, but get really, really good at asking questions. Yeah, it's so interesting. What are the few questions or there are a couple things you're always looking for that I guess it passes the AG smell test that this is something that could be big, that's worth founding? Are there at least a couple things that you do look for, even though you don't have the nth answer to the nth question, if you will? Yeah, yeah. And and I have learned this the hard way. I would say that like many entrepreneurs early on, I sort of started with the solution. I would get really interested in what data could do or the interesting things that we had skill sets in relative to extracting or making sense out of data. And the mistake was, and this is, I think it's people do it all the time, is starting with the solution and then going out and being like, well, we can do all this great stuff. Let's go find people who need what we do. And, and that is, in, that is completely the upside down way of doing it. So, so now what I get obsessed with is finding a very big problem that touches a lot of people in a moment where there is potentially a lot of money coming in from multiple sources, right? So there's, there's many, you know, go to markets and healthcare. And, and so, you know, will payers pay? Will employers pay? Will individuals kick in? Is there a way of getting all the money flows lined up? And, and does that bucket actually add up to, to a large bucket? Is it a large bucket for a specific and set number of people? Is it a lot of people? And, and, and how, how do you quantify essentially the TAM? And, and you and I, again, have had lots of long night conversations about like, you know, how do you really think about TAM? And I, I get very dogmatic about the fact that yes, you should look at the potential impact. Everybody comes in, we're going to prevent hospitalizations and hospitalizations cost $13 billion. That's not necessarily your TAM. 
Your TAM is how many people will buy your thing and how long is it going to take you to sell to them, right? Because TAM is also should be discounted over time and, and sales cycles. I and mean, that's another thing I think people don't think about. But but so I get really obsessed about like starting with that, because if you have a big number, if you have a large problem that a lot of people are invested in solving, you can experiment with a lot of different models and you can fail because you're going to right across those different models and still have a great business. And the ideal circumstances where you have at least two, ideally three go-to-markets that you can really lock in and who are deeply aligned and invested. That's not, that doesn't mean they're not, they're going to want the same solution, but they want the same problem solved potentially from different perspectives, but they want the same problem solved. And that to me is sort of the beginning of the magic is, is getting excited about, wow, this is a big problem. A lot of people care about this and there's a lot of money behind, behind solving it. So now AG has seen this big town, you've seen potential go to markets and you say, I'm going to found this like kind of like day one, what are the things or what's the AG recipe that you start to think about that you say, okay, and I don't, you know, name whatever, is it the first 90 days or, or the first, you know, six months? Like, how do you think, or what are the things that you really like to tackle? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I become a a sort of a truffle pig for who will spend money and, and how can we test that? So, so there's a long tradition in the sort of B2B space, I think of going and getting the Sentinel client and so on. And, and a lot of people sort of think you got to give it all the way free and blah, blah, blah. And, and my question is always actually who will pay for us to help dive in and solve this problem, even in the context of a pilot. And it doesn't have to be, obviously, I don't think it's, it's usually upfront money, but you know, will they sign a dollar contract for us to achieve a certain outcome by virtue of, of the problem that we solve? And that to me is really important. I think again, and it can be discounted. It can be, there can be all sorts of ways to, to compensate your early customers, but the willingness to pay, I think is, is, is the sentinel test. And with some sense of the scale of the dollars in, engaged in solving the problem. And like I said, there's a lot of ways of, of structuring those early contracts. So, you know, your early customers get upside on, on having, on having worked with you and taken the risk on you, but the will that proving that willingness to pay. And then in the direct consumer, and, and I think you and I love doing this, which is how do we, how do we put up really cheap tests up to, to test whether or not people will will actually pull their credit card out of their wallet and, and pay for something. And and I think we've gotten actually quite good at that. And we've gotten creative in the ways of doing that. But I'm, like I said, really looking for somebody's willingness to pull their credit card out of their wallet to me is is really important. And if people are saying, yeah, you know, I, and this goes to one of my other cardinal rules, never give anything away free for in healthcare. Don't give it, if you're giving things away, it, unless it's to, in a very few rare circumstances in some sort of freemium model, you're probably doing something wrong and you're probably making an assumption that's going to prove to, to bite you in the butt later on. Somebody's got to pull their wallet out and that's really critical. I'm, I'm curious, what are, what are the first couple hires? you look for? Because I think absolutely on your go-to-market strategy and how you've thought about it. And then now, again, you're that that one person in the company. 
how do you think about it, AG? And I, I know you're, you know, it goes without saying, having been the chief product officer of many companies, a kind of certain bent, right? And then what if you're not, you know, as product oriented as you are? Let's say some of our listeners are founders that are more, you know, commercially oriented. Let's just say that. How, how would you adjust that thinking and framework? Yeah. So, so I think it, you know, you put your finger on a really important point, which is figuring out what you're not good at and finding the people around you that you need really quickly to, to help manage that. And again, I think it has to do with doing it in a way that is extremely cost effective, particularly in those very earliest days. So, so it's sort of about finding people that are as crazy as you are and who are willing to, you know, work for a year for, for, you know, peanuts in a sense and, and the hope of something. And so those, you know, those, People that have those beliefs, I think, are first and foremost. Second, I think, is the skill set. So, you know, is this a deep technical build? Is this a B2B play and you really need somebody who's got the sort of biz dev strategic partnership kind of skills that can bridge into sales? Is this a D2C play where you need somebody that's got a little bit more of that performance marketing and, and, and I think community building aspect to their, their skill set? Do you need somebody that's clinical and, and how can you acquire that knowledge base? So, so it depends on the market. It depends very definitively on the market. You know, with folks, we started D2C. We did that very deliberately because we, we really wanted to build something that had, you know, broad appeal and could achieve and, and could connect with the community at, at a very deeply authentic level. And so it was about recruiting, you know, clinical marketing expertise and technical were the first three boxes that we really needed to check. And then I usually try to have somebody who's an all-star athlete um, in the background as well, who's way, way better at me that, at organizing things because uh, you always need somebody who is just operationally minded to to start to think about basically keeping the trains running early, but also the track that you lay early is going to determine so much of how the company either succeeds or fails. And if you screw that up or you misstep on making some assumptions structurally, you can get yourself into trouble then and you're undoing, you know, pulling, pulling wiring out or pulling, pulling, you know, culture mistakes out. And, and that's tough to do. It's tough to do later on. You are, I believe, if not the rare, if not only digital health founder that's founded a B2B business from zero to exit, and then also a direct-to-consumer business from zero to the momentum that folks has today. And it's just such a, it's such a unique perspective on kind of healthcare. What are the kind of attributes or the differences? Are there a couple of things that you'd want to you know, tell people that just like between those two worlds, which many do not straddle, or like where we should be thinking about convergence. Because I, again, I've, I've been racking my brain on this one, AG, but truly, <laughs> I think you're the only entrepreneur who has done this. Well, I hope that doesn't persist as, as being the case. You know, B2B in healthcare is, is a relationship game, is a really actually small landscape. And between the large health systems, the large payer organizations, the major self-insured employers, the major sort of anchor tenants in, in pharma and, and, you know, CROs and PBMs to just throw all the letter soup out that we live in every day. You know, those, those are fairly well understood kind of, you know, anchor tenants in the, in the healthcare landscape. And so, 
you know, being able to understand, and this is what I always say when, when I, we get like a new young entrepreneur who's like, I'm going to solve <clears throat> the problem of, you know, buying drugs in, in the healthcare market. And you're like, okay, do you know why? What, what the legacy history is of PBMs and the way purchasing happens and the way, you know, pharma interacts with payers. Like, do you understand how those, those relationships work and how those money flows work? And they're like, no, but I just know they stink. And you're like, no, they do stink. <laughs> like the, the money flows are not efficient. We know that, but there are big reasons for those structural inefficiencies. And what I always like to say in healthcare is one person's inefficiency is another person's, um, entire revenue stream. So, so, Thinking that you're just going to go in and kind of, you know, have a great solution is, is usually wrong, especially in the B2B context. So understanding and going in with a, an acute knowledge of where you're going to hit a wall and, and understanding how you can get around that. Not that you're not going to go break that wall down later, but as a new company, as a young company, where do you have to navigate those, those structural, structural aspects of the market. And then how are you going to break that wall down once you get to scale? Cause scale, scale is, scale is the battering ram of healthcare. Yeah. Um, I, you're going to you know, laugh because our, of course, our analogies are incredibly similar. So I've said in the past to entrepreneurs, you know, I know you want to storm the castle, but don't you want a map of the castle? Like understand how exactly the castle right. is built, yeah. understand the thickness of that wall, right? Understand wow. the next gate after that gate. And then with that yeah. knowledge, let's go storm the castle. <laughs> That's right. And are you dealing with a granite block or is this a tufa stone exactly. that we can just drill right through, right? Like we, you have to understand where the, where the, you know, deep geography and, and architecture of the system is. There's no question. And that's not, you know, that is just a lifetime of like, you know, just banging your head against those rocks to know what they're made out of. So, so I, you know, and you can acquire that, you can acquire that knowledge, but you have to be very studious about it. And you have to be respectful of, of the fact that those are, those are longstanding structural, you know, aspects of, of, of the, the system. What I will say, and you and I, I think also agree on this is like, I have a really simple mantra in healthcare, which is as go the patient, so goes the money. If you can redirect patients through new flows, if you can redirect patients um, and engage them in, in new ways, you can, you can start. That is one of the biggest levers. And that is, you know, your, your point about sort of my transition from B2B to D2C was really driven by the recognition that if you can go directly to patients and consumers and people, and you can, you can engage them deeply, then you can start to make change to the healthcare system based on the fact that you now have a bunch of people who are clamoring with you outside the gates, so to speak. And that's a much more powerful force than just sort of standing outside the castle and being like, this is a stupid castle. You should blow it up because you're like, someone standing in a castle is going to be like, why should I blow my castle up? You are not making any sense. But if you have the people outside sort of saying like, no, this is actually not working for us. That is a hugely important lever. And, and personally, I think a lot of businesses, I won't say all, but a lot of businesses should be thinking about the ways in which they interact directly with consumers, given that we can reach them now effectively through social media and through other platforms, if you're willing to put the time in to learn how to master those, those, those media. Yeah, I, it, it's really interesting to me because I think Typically, the world sees this as like two different business models. 
And I think you and I have talked a long time about actually like the convergence of this. And so just to put a finer point, like I actually believe in B2B models. There could be, you know, we need to think about the consumer, even though it's a B2B model, right? And how do we leverage that force even in this model, right? And so I think that, you know, instead of the world seeing this as like two distinct ways, I actually, and I think we're starting to see that, right? The interlacing of these things. And so we really absolutely resonate on that, which is, which is, which is, I think the exciting part of healthcare for the next five, 10 years. I absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, I think coming from my experience with, with Optum and, and, and UHG, you know, we had unbelievably good programs and people were scratching their heads saying we have single digit engagement. And it was like, of course you have, we have single digit engagement. Like people aren't going to be like, I'm going to go to my insurance company, ask them for a program to help my, you know, weight loss. It was like, that's not the way people think. And, and we are not building, you know, healthcare still. And I think this is, this is going to be the next, I think, really interesting thing. And we're starting to see this with the companies that I get really excited about, which is they're building brand. They're actually building consumer brand. And that consumer brand is a brand that people, in their own lives want to be associated with. So again, using folks as analogy, we deliberately wanted to build a brand that people would feel amazing about both in terms of packaging and the way that they thought about the, you know, just the look and feel and everything that this is a brand that represents them as people in the world. And I think as we start to think about, you know, the companies that are starting to reach people, whether it's in mental health or whether it's in, you know, weight loss or whether it's in even, you know, complex illness, cancer, others, people, I think, want to have control of their lives and, and healthcare is essential to that. And if we build brands that people can latch onto and think about as representing them, that to me, again, is a huge lever and it helps us think very differently about engagement. Healthcare doesn't think about brand in that way. And I think it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think about so many things that you just said in terms of how you founded folks and that evolution. And, you know, we had defined very much, again, similarly to how you talk about it, is like authenticity of voice, right? And really focusing on like the community first, like almost, you know, before even product, right? Like what is this going to speak to who they are and how they see themselves and how the world sees them? It was just, it's so fundamental and so powerful. And, and now we see like the brand that folks has become being named time, most hundred influential brands of the year. I mean, it's just, you know, again, I don't think we're used to seeing digital health companies or healthcare companies being told they're one of the most influential brands. If you think about the most powerful brands in the country historically, and 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 not necessarily the biggest companies, but the most powerful brands, they a lot of them touch the body, right? It's clothing, right? It's makeup. It's you know, it's stuff that represents our our physical, the way we move through the world, and that's the opportunity to me that healthcare hasn't captured is to recognize that like this is how people move through the world. It touches them. And, and also breaking down that, that artificial barrier between health and wellness. It is a huge opportunity to sort of say like, wow, that is, that touches me every single day. Whereas like, 
you know, I, I may not interact with, you know, my, my, you know, I don't know, like bicycle every single day, right? That may not be a thing that represents me, but my body does. I do think it's so important to talk about that moment with folks, like that very first moment of what inspired you, what you were seeing in the world and like to the phone call, if you will, you know, walk us through a little bit of that, because I think it's such, again, a unique story that's going to happen so many more times in healthcare as we walk forward over the next 10 years, as we think about this interwoven consumer experience. But talk about that what was like influencing you at that time, what you were seeing and what like drove you to this? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think first was watching, you know, companies like Hims and Roe break down the ability for a consumer brand to, I think, really reach people on the basis again of that. How do I want to be represented in the world and how does healthcare interact with that? That to me was really provocative and interesting. And so I was looking at it from that perspective. And, and what I wanted to elaborate then was to sort of say, look, if we can find, you know, if, if there is a community, a single group of people who share a characteristic or share a concern, and, you know, sometimes that's disease states, you know, what have you, I think that that gives you the ability to then have a really long relationship. And so it was, I was looking for something. And then I always like to tell people that I had a, a dope slap moment where I sort of was like, oh my God, my own community, right? The LGBTQ community. And when I really stopped to think about that, it to me allowed an exploration. I think of a dynamic that a lot of people interacting with healthcare experience, but don't articulate, which is, you know, for the LGBTQ community, there is a deep sense of alienation in terms of the, the healthcare system always dictating to us that we are abnormal and that we are different and that we are, you know, don't conform to the definitions, whether it's gender identity or sexuality or how you make family or any of these things, even, you know, your mental health status. And, and that, that I think is an incredibly disempowering construct. Now let's put aside physical assault and, and discrimination, which also happens at an incredibly high degree. But, but, but under that was this sense of, of wanting to control our bodies, wanting, wanting to control our identities and labeling those in such a way that, that, that created alienation and disconnect. The interesting thing to me is that that's actually, it is very acute in this population. It is not unique to this population. If you're a female, right? If you are of a certain age, if you are of a certain weight, if you are of many different characteristics, you are labeled in lots of different ways as being abnormal. And so, so, so what that uncovered for me was this interesting question of how do we put patients in control, not patient centricity, actual patient control and what is that challenge in the healthcare system that i that to me was a very deep emotional mind to to vein to mine and then came the call to you which was to say okay i think there's a really powerful thing here that we can do for the lgbt community but but also that will resonate more generally and that becomes a model for this idea of how do you build brands that really go to the ability for people to start to control their bodies and have healthcare be an instrument that they use to for self-determination, as opposed to the opposite, which is what most often happens. If you're diagnosed with a significant illness, 
cancer or others, you suddenly have this moment of being, you know, quite frankly, on your back and regaining that sense of self-control, regaining now having the ability to make the healthcare system an instrument for your own purposes, rather than feeling like things are just being done to you, I think is an incredibly new, different, and powerful tool for us to build companies and build brands around. Because it is, it, it really touches the heart of who we are as, as self-determinant. And, and that is something that I think we can build on all day long. I mean, I think I can think about what you just said for many, a long, long time after this podcast. So maybe we'll just conclude is, AG, is there, if you're a young entrepreneur, are there just you know, a couple of lessons or anything that just words of advice, if you will, you have for the next generation? Yeah. I mean, I think learn really fast, get really good at learning really, really fast, which means assume you're wrong most of the time, or assume that if you're what I, and you've heard me say this, I always like to say this to young entrepreneurs on your best day, you are going to be right about 40% of the time which means that you're going to be wrong most of the time. And the other thing is if you don't constantly push that horizon of understanding, you will go from 40 to 39 to 38 to 37 really fast because no no knowledge actually stays stays true except the the, the knowledge of change itself. But so so being obsessive about that and not being afraid of that that sense of of ignorance. And then I think the other thing is particularly in healthcare is understand that landscape, understand where those, those castles are and why they exist. And don't assume that just some great solution is going to be the battering ram that's going to knock that thing down. Chances are really good. You got to be inside the castle and you got to be inside the architecture to figure out how to then change it as opposed to try to just blow it up. And then, like I said, I think the third thing is, you know, as go the patient, so goes the money. So, figure out how to engage the, the patient communities that you're working with. And in particular, don't do it at them, do it with them. That, that I think will always serve you, you know, unless you're building a pure technical solution under the covers, but, but, but always, always regard that as you think about, uh, you know, where you're going. Well, AG, as always, your inspiration, your experience, your just, I just have to say your vision of everything is just so incredibly inspiring and just so honored to partner with you in so many different ways. And so thank you for your time here on this podcast. Thank you for your lessons learned and truly your energy to recreate a new healthcare system. Well, Lynn, I have to thank you for this. I think I wish I'd had a podcast like this when I was um, <laughs> trying to figure out this incredibly interesting but complicated world. And, you know, I think there cannot be a greater resource for young entrepreneurs to be thinking about, you know, healthcare in particular, because it is not a normal industry. And, and you are you are just one of the best guides, if not the best guide I know, to help us like navigate this incredibly complicated system because it is just, it is not for the faint of heart. So thank you. Yeah, we'll right back at you. Thank you so much. This is Day Zero, a podcast by Think Media. Subscribe to Day Zero on your favorite podcasting app or platform.